Good morning. Good morning. Wow, we're awake this morning. Amen to the 10 a.m. start. I've been pretty oblivious to this cloth thing, so apparently there's some stuff going on behind my back around the office, so I got to keep on watch. I'm excited to be speaking today. I have a good message for you guys, at least I think so. And a bigger theme of today's message is going to be about the idea of corruption and struggle in our own head and our own minds. I think we can all relate to a time where we felt that battle inside of our head, that struggle. And when I think about a corrupt, twisted mind, I think about my older brother. (laughs) My older brother is actually a new father as of, I think, 12 days today. We have a little newborn in the family. So I'm an uncle for the first time. But my brother was not always a responsible father. My brother was sick and twisted and corrupted. And, and as an older brother, he loved taking advantage of the younger brother and slowly convincing me and tricking me into doing horrible things. He corrupted my mind. One day I was in the backyard and I knew the difference between right or wrong and I knew something was wrong and stupid. But my brother thought it was a good idea. So he came outside with... Um, You know, he had a new bottle of Axe body spray, and he had a pretty cool lighter. And he thought, man, this would be awesome. I'm going to light my brother on fire. And I knew this was a bad idea, so I told my brother, there's no shot I'm letting you light me on fire. This is stupid. I know in my head that that is wrong. But as somebody continues to talk to you and continues to work on you and tell you it's going to be fun, it's not going to hurt, it'll go away quick, you start to think, you know, maybe this is going to be fun. And next thing you know, I'm standing like this in the backyard, letting my brother spray my whole body down with Axe body spray. And he takes the lighter at my feet, and he lights my feet, and my whole body goes up in flames. And the fire went away quickly, and I was like, you know what, that actually was kind of fun. (laughs) But when you think something is wrong, and you slowly get convinced into something being right, you're like, okay, there's no more, we're not doing anything more, we're not going any farther than that. That was enough. Until my brother wanted to light somebody else on fire. And he looked over to the left, and who was in our backyard? The neighborhood kid that my brother was babysitting that day. And he thought, let's light him on fire. And he, as well as me, was like, no shot, I'm getting light on fire. But now there's two of us saying, come on, it's fun. And slowly the mind gets corrupt, and he says, you know what, light me on fire, go for it. So we light the neighborhood kid on fire. And I think that if you're willing to stand there and get lit on fire, you should not be allowed to go home and tell your mom that the babysitter lit you on fire. But that's what he did. And like the younger brother that I am, when my mom found out, I said, he lit me on fire, I didn't want to be lit on fire. And I got my older brother in trouble. This is just a good story, in my opinion, of how quickly our minds can know right and wrong But quickly, we can be told certain things and be convinced, and we start to justify our actions, and we start giving in to these corrupt ways. I'm pumped to be up here today to be continuing our series in Revelations. Last week, we had Pastor Derek Hamry from CLA over in Langley. He came and spent the weekend with us. He spoke on Saturday night at our family camp, and then he spoke as well here on Sunday morning. And Derek talked about the church in Smyrna. Derek did an incredible job last week, and what I love specifically about Derek's message last week is how he started off the message by teaching us how to take in the book of Revelations. 
because I think the way Derek told us to take it in is much simpler than we make it at times. Revelations is not for us to read and come up with our own theories or ideas, but Derek was pretty clear that Revelations, we are supposed to read Revelations, understand who this was written for, what it meant to them, and that's how we take it. We are supposed to take Revelations as it was understood to the original context of the people it was written for. So that's what we're going to do today. For some context, where we're picking up, there's a man named John, and at this point in his life, he's in his late 80s. So he's an 80-year-old man, and he has been sent off as a prisoner to this island called Patmos. If you remember last week, Derek had this awesome graph up on the screen, a map showing where Patmos is. And I actually think where Patmos is is worse than being out in the middle of the ocean because he's on this island where he can actually look and see the mainland. He can see the city and the people, but he can't be with them. He's a prisoner on the island of Patmos. He's here in the year 96 AD. And as John is on this island in his late 80s, Jesus reveals himself to John So Jesus shows up with these seven lampstands around him. John describes Jesus in the Bible, and he says, he had a robe to his feet, a golden girdle. If you played football growing up like me, you have a horrible image of a girdle getting hiked up over a lineman. But this is not the girdle we're talking about. It is more of a golden chest piece. So Jesus has a robe to his feet and a golden girdle on his chest. He has hair like snow. He has bronze feet eyes of fire and a face shining like the sun. So Jesus shows up looking like this, and around him are these seven lampstands. And what's important to note that John writes is that John writes that Jesus is standing directly in the middle, in in the middle of these seven lampstands. And this is already a beautiful picture that Jesus is showing us because he's not up there looking down on us, or he's not looking at the seven churches but he's actually standing right in the middle of these seven lampstands, which were representing the seven churches in Asia Minor at the time. Jesus has come down and stood right in the center, right in the middle of them to fight with them. Jesus has not looked down on churches, but he is actually present and in the midst of them, just like our church here today in Comox. Jesus is in the midst and in the middle of this church. Now, Jesus, as he's down here on, with John, with the seven lampstands, he presents a message for each of these seven churches for John to pass on. Last week, Derek talked about the message that was sent to the church in Smyrna, and today we're going to be diving into the message that Jesus had given to the church in the city of Pergamum. This message was from Jesus for the people who live in Pergamum to, and for anyone who reads it to encourage those to live a life of faith in a very difficult city, a difficult post-modern pluralistic culture similar to what we live in today. The scripture we're focusing on today is found in Revelations 2, verses 12 to 17. I'm going to read the whole chunk of scripture right now, and then we're going to break it down verse by verse. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You do not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, Otherwise, I will soon come to you, 
and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, before we dive deeper into this text and go through it verse by verse, I would like to take a look at the city of Pergamum and figure out what do we know about the city at the time. We know a couple things. We know that Pergamum was a very proud and smart city. They were known for their literature, and they even had a pretty famous library at the time that housed over 200,000 scrolls, which was the biggest. Pergamum was very smart, and and because of that, their symbol that represented their city was actually a double-edged sword, the same language that Jesus used in his message. This double-edged sword represents the right of the sword. So back in 96 AD, the Roman Empire could give certain cities the right of the sword, which basically meant they had freedom to use capital punishment. Now, Jesus had opened this message pretty aggressive. Usually he comes in very graceful and soft, but here he actually comes in pretty aggressive and firmly when he speaks, saying, he who speaks has the sharp, double-edged sword. He's saying his tongue is a sharp, double-edged sword in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. It sounds aggressive. It sounds pretty aggressive for somebody known as the Prince of Peace. When he says, I have a sharp, double-edged sword, it sounds more like a soldier who's ready for battle. Why is that? The reason Jesus is starting the message like this, there actually is an answer to it, and it's because there was a battle going on. The people in Pergamum were in a very serious battle, and it's a battle that we all face today, everywhere all over the world, and back then. A battle for the mind. John Scott puts it this way. Here pitched a battle that was being fought in which the soldiers were not men, but ideas. Now, as we go through this message, we're going to find a pattern that Jesus follows for a lot of these messages that he delivers to the seven churches. And it it goes like this. He starts by commending them. So he tells them something they're doing good. He says, good job for doing this. After he commends them and encourages them, he actually has a complaint. So there's something that they're doing wrong that he wants to address. And after he addresses what is wrong, he then makes a commitment to them. We call this the bad news sandwich. Something good, something bad, something good. I'm sure people have done that before. Me and Pastor Trevor, it's been nice having him back in the office this week. And we kind of joked about the idea of the bad news sandwich all week. So if Trevor came in the office one day, I would let him know that I loved his shirt. Those shorts are terrible. Love your shoes. (laughs) You put the bad news right in the middle. It softens the blow a little bit. And that is what Jesus is doing here. So Jesus then commends the church in Pergamum to start in verse 13. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You do not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. He doubles down on Satan living there. Jesus is commending the people in Pergamum. He's saying, good job. He's saying good job for staying true to his name and remaining in faith, even though they live in an incredible, difficult city where Satan's throne sits. Now, Satan's throne, of course, isn't actually there, and there's no Satan's throne in Comox, but it's this idea that we live in difficult places to be Christians. We live in a place where it sometimes can be difficult to stay true to our faith and stay true to Jesus when everything around us seems to be 
against it. And Jesus commends them for doing that. And Jesus also commends us for doing it here in Comox where we live. Because although we all live in an amazing place and we can all agree to that, there is still lots of work to be done here in terms of the kingdom. Now, why does Jesus say that Satan's throne sits in the city of Pergamum? That seems pretty harsh and pretty aggressive. I think about, imagine if you lived in Pergamum and you were proud of your city and you really loved it and you loved Jesus, and all of a sudden he's telling you that Satan's throne and Satan sits in your city. You'd be like, I, I haven't seen this throne. I'm gonna, you'd probably be curious, why is Jesus saying something so harsh about this city? There's a couple things that were happening in the city of Pergamum at the time. Pergamum was the center of Caesar worship. People would travel far and wide to come and worship Caesar Augustus, and they even won permission to build the first temple in his honor. So in the city of Pergamum, there's this massive temple dedicated to Caesar. Now, there's also another temple in the city of Pergamum, and if I asked everyone in this church to tell me what their biggest fear would be, a lot of them would actually probably describe something pretty similar to this next temple. This temple would be my biggest fear. There's a temple in Pergamum dedicated to a god of healing named Asclepios. Asclepios' symbol was a snake, a serpent. Now, people all over would want to be healed by this god named Asclepios, and they would travel far and wide to come to this temple, and you would spend a night sleeping inside of this temple. And the idea was that you would be healed if you were lucky enough to have a snake crawl on you in your sleep. It was the same idea that if a snake crawled on you in your sleep, that was equivalent to the touch of the god of Asclepios healing you. That sounds like the worst thing ever. And of course, we know that in Scripture, the serpent sometimes can represent something that lures people away from God, so that paints a picture for you. Now, there was the temple for Caesar, there was the temple for Asclepios, and there was also a massive temple dedicated to Zeus. And I actually think the picture of Zeus's temple says a thousand words, because where Zeus's temple was placed was on the hillside right beside the city, and they had this massive altar and massive temple built for Zeus, and this temple for false worship actually casted a physical shadow over the entire city. The city was in darkness underneath the shadow of these temples. Now, none of these are specific reasons, but all of these things show that Pergamum was blinded to the truth, and Pergamum was a corrupt city, and it was so corrupt that there's not actually a throne that Satan sits on, but it's a city where Satan can comfortably dwell and live because there is not much opposition towards him. But through all of that, through the temples, through the shadow, through where Satan dwells, the church had remained faithful to Jesus, which is why Jesus commends them. He's also commending them in this verse for remaining true to him through the murder of Antipas, who would have been the pastor of the church at the time. So they have the right of the sword, they can use capital punishment, and they actually put the pastor of the church, they murdered him in the city for people to watch. These are incredibly hard times for the church in Pergamum, yet they have kept their walls up and remained faithful to Jesus. So Jesus commends them for what they're doing good, but we know that after the, after the commends, there's gotta be something bad, the bad news sandwich, we're in the middle right now. So Jesus then complains. After he commends them, he says this. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. 
So Jesus commends them for what they're doing good, and then he complains for something that is going on. And Jesus was right in the beginning by commending them because the church in Pergamum was faithful and true to God and withstood the outside pressure. But the problem with the church of Pergamum is that they they withstood the outside pressure, but they actually had their own pressure building up inside the church and inside their minds and hearts in their own souls. Sometimes our greatest struggles like Pergamum are battles on the internal. They're battles in our soul, they're battles in our mind, and it can weigh on us heavily. There's a couple important things I want us to remember when we're talking about the battle of the mind and the internal struggles that some of us feel And the first thing that a lot of us probably struggle with, and it took me a long time to realize, is this. The thoughts that pop up into your head are not always you. You can't totally take on the weight of shame and guilt because of the things you think. Sometimes the enemy tries to attack and he puts things into your head. Now there are three words that we're gonna look at to remember that are helpful to me and helpful to other people that I know that help us in the battle of the mind. So we got three F's that we're gonna remember. The first one is filter. We have to make sure that we are filtering our thoughts and filtering the things that come through our mind. So the filter part of this would be the before anything happens. So this is the intentional decision to start to think about the right thing. So today I am going to think about God. I'm gonna focus on Jesus. I am going to try to filter my thoughts and think about the right things and all the bad things that sometimes pop into my head, I'm gonna try to filter them out and not think about them. But of course we know that no matter how many times we try to do that, no matter how many times we intentionally try to focus on certain things, there are gonna be terrible thoughts and bad things that pop up into our head at times. That's why the second word is fight. Now there's two parts to this fight, and I'm gonna talk about the first part first. There are many times in scripture where it says we're supposed to fight the thoughts that pop up into our head. If bad things pop up into your head, or if you have this terrible thought that you know is wrong, You can't let it stay there. You have to fight it and try to get rid of it. I love a quote that helps us understand this. It says, you cannot control a bird landing on your head, but you can control whether it makes a nest. So sometimes you're walking down the street, I don't know if anyone's had this, bird lands on your head, boom. I have not had that before. But if a bird lands on your head, you're gonna start smacking, you're gonna try to get it off your head. You're not gonna let it sit there and make a nest, make a home, unless you love birds, I don't know, but... But when the bad thoughts pop up into your head, it's that picture of, okay, it's there, get rid of it. Fight it, get it out of your head. Now before we move on to the word focus, I wanna say one thing about fight. We already read in this scripture verse in Revelations that they were falling to some sexual immorality. Now the Bible is very clear that so many times in life we are supposed to fight the thoughts and temptations that pop up into our head. But when it comes to sexual temptation, sexual sin, sexual thoughts that pop up into our head that we know are wrong, the Bible is actually very, very clear that we are not supposed to fight those thoughts. We are not supposed to to try to stay tough and say, hey, I can actually be over here. I can be in this dark place and withstand it because I'm strong. We're not actually supposed to fight those thoughts. Jesus is very clear that when it comes to sexual thoughts, sexual temptations, we are supposed to flee. So we're not supposed to fight it, we're supposed to flee. We're supposed to get as far away as we possibly can. Whatever that looks like for you. If you need to leave a party, leave the party. If you need to run away from somebody, run away from somebody. If you need to delete social media, delete social media. We are told to run away from it because we actually cannot win that battle. Get your mind off of it and get yourself out of that situation. 
God describes himself as having a tongue of a double-edged sword because he has a sword of truth that wants to cut through the lies that we're believing in our mind. In Isaiah 26, 3, it says, if our mind will be at perfect peace when we focus on God. So the last word is focus. We are supposed to do the best that we can to make our lives a focus to God. And, that's, and, and of course, that's internally in our thoughts. But, but physical practices also help our thoughts as well. If we can get a rhythm with our spiritual disciplines where we're spending time reading the Bible, we're spending time in prayer, that can help our thoughts. What we do with our body physically and our mind and our heart can impact the things that we think. And God promises it. If we make him the focus, we will have peace in our mind. Now the people in the church of Pergamum at this time had lost the battle in the mind. They had fallen to the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, And those two things would be that they were eating food sacrificed to gods and they had become fallen to sexual immorality. Now some of us are probably thinking, why is eating food sacrificed to gods a big deal? What power does that hold if we believe in the only living God? It's just meat that was cooked in an oven. There's nothing to it. Now, meals were very different back in 96 AD. In the context that we're reading this in, meals were very special and didn't actually happen very often between two parties. So if a meal had happened back then, it was a very big deal and it was a very big commitment in a bonding experience between the two parties. And when they had these meals with the foods that were sacrificed to the God, the whole idea of these meals was that the gods were actually joining them for dinner because of the sacrificed foods. And because you're now sharing a meal with these false gods, you are building a close connection with them. And of course, if we believe in the one living God again, what power does that hold? But there are so many things today that if we believe in the living God, what power does that hold? What power do certain cards that we shouldn't be messing with, certain boards that we shouldn't be messing with, what powers do those hold? But it can be dangerous spiritually to be messing with stuff like that. And that is why they are told to withstand and stay away from meat that is sacrificed to God's eating at those tables. But they had succumbed to it. Now, sexual immorality was the other problem. It was a major problem. And as I was reading the book that Daryl Johnson had written on Revelations, I almost couldn't believe it because he was describing this culture as way more hypersexualized than even the world we live in today, which seems impossible because the world we live in today is incredibly sexualized, but it was even worse back then. Prostitution had become very normalized for everybody, even the people inside the church, because they had fallen to the idea that things that you do with your body don't actually matter that much because we are spiritual people and we are spiritual beings, and they thought they could do things with the body that were separate from the spirit. But the Bible is pretty clear that what we do with our body, we do with our spirit, that our body is us, our spirit is us. So there is no leaving your, body, your spirit in the car as your body goes inside to do something you shouldn't. There is no body separate from spirit. What you do with your body has incredible weight and power and can damage your spiritual life and your spirit. It is important that your body and spirit are one and you should treat it as such and listen to the teachings of the living God. Now, how did this church fall to these teachings? We read that this is a bad city. There's bad things going on. Satan is dwelling there comfortably. Yet, Jesus commended them for for staying strong. But he's also saying they've fallen and they've become corrupt to these teachings. How did that happen? It happened the same way lots of us fall for certain things. 
It happened the same way an eight-year-old boy in his backyard got lit on fire by his older brother. We slowly start to be convinced by the, by the way that things are said. And in this day and age, at this time, the church in Pergamum had these teachings given to them wrapped up in spiritual language to try to trick them and to justify the actions and things like, well, it's just your body, it's not your spirit. So they wrapped up these bad things in, in, in religious language and it, and it slowly built up pressure on the inside and the people of the church of Pergamum were starting to justify their actions and, and they were falling to these bad things, the teachings of the Balaam and Nicolaitans. Now, let's read verse 16 together. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus tells them to repent of these sins, and we know that the word repent, one, it's asking for forgiveness, but two, it also means to actually just totally turn the other way and go the other way. So you're supposed to actually have your life changed by this idea of repenting. I'm over here. I'm not supposed to stay over here and say, God, forgive me. No, you're supposed to change and go completely the opposite direction and in the opposite way. So Jesus tells them to repent from the sins that they have fallen to. Turn around and run the other way. Change now. But what I love in this message to the church in Pergamum is that Jesus is not just telling us, hey, repent, turn the other way. I hope you do it. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is saying, repent, turn the other way. And if you don't, Jesus says, I will come and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So he encourages us to repent and go the other way. But Jesus is still saying, I'm not going to watch. I'm, I'm not totally comfortable sitting up here and watching you fall to these teachings. I will come down with the sharp, double-edged sword of truth and cut through those lies and fight for you. We have a God who fights for us. He will not stand by so Jesus had commended them for doing something good, and now he has complained about the teachings that they have fallen to, the corruption in their mind and in the church. Now we know that Jesus commends, complains, and you've got to end the bad news sandwich with something good again. So Jesus makes a commitment. We read verse 17 here. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who is victorious... I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, only known to the one who receives it. This is incredible news for us because Jesus tells us something we've done good and he tells us what we're doing wrong, but Jesus is not standing by and watching. He makes his commitment to us at the end here. So Jesus knows that they have fallen to certain teachings. He knows that they are eating food to sacrifice gods, and he wants that to change. So Jesus, I love that he's even saying, to those who are victorious, I actually have some food for you. You don't need to eat the food sacrificed to the gods. I have some hidden manna for you to those who are victorious. To those who are victorious and stay true to me, do not need to be fed by the world because they will be fed eternally by the living God. Jesus has more than they need for us. We don't have to worry about the things of the world. We don't have to worry about, oh, well, you know, that meat actually looks pretty good. I'm going to eat it. We don't have to worry about all the things that we, we think we want or think we need or justify that's okay because there's so many things in life that are not good for our spirits, that are not good for our souls, but we can convince ourselves and justify our actions in doing such. But Jesus says, you do not need to eat of the world because I can feed you eternally. He has hidden manna for those who are victorious. We get so focused on the things of the world, but Jesus has more than enough, and we should go to him. 
after he says to those who are victorious, you can have some food, I will feed you. He says, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, when you read that, that's probably one of the one things in this passage that's like, what does he mean by that? He's going to give me a white stone. Now, there are many ideas that people have studied and come up with on what this means, but all of them paint a beautiful picture. So I'm going to share two with you today that I love and think paints a beautiful picture of what this white stone may mean and how Jesus is trying to reveal himself to us. The first one is this. In 96 AD, the time that this message was written, they were Roman games that people would commit, compete in. And if you were victorious and if you won the Roman games, just like Jesus says, if we are victorious and win, the winners of the Roman games would be given a white stone. And they'd be given this white stone and they would have their name written on it. Just like Jesus says, we will get a stone with our name written on it. And this was not their trophy or their prize, but this was actually a ticket. Because those who were victorious in the Roman games were invited into a grand feast. Doesn't that paint a beautiful picture of what our Jesus is like? If you are victorious, here is your ticket. Join me for eternity in the greatest feast you will ever have. I can sustain you. Another one. Jesus gives us this white stone. And we see that another idea of what this white stone could mean is this. In 96 AD, there, there was these white stones that people would have, and I would write my name on it. And for example, my wife Chantille would write her name on the other side. And back in 96 AD, they would break that stone in half. You keep it, I keep it. This is our commitment to our relationship that will last forever. What a beautiful picture again of Jesus. Break the stone in half. Here's your part, I got my part not with humanity's name on it, not with the word people on it, your specific name that I have given you. I care about you. I keep this stone. I commit to you with love in relationship. It is incredible news for us that Jesus commits to us. He commends us. The first thing he does is he wants to tell us what a good job we're doing. He has open arms and he's loving and he says, you are doing so good. Keep going. But of course, we don't do everything right. He has a couple complaints. He tells us, he makes us aware of the things that are going on, which isn't something that we should be afraid of. That's something we should be very excited and happy about because Jesus does not stand by and watch us struggle, watch us feel pain, watch us make mistakes. But he's telling us, this is what you're doing wrong. Repent or I am actually willing to come down with my sword and fight for you. So Jesus makes his complaint and then, like always, Jesus does not tell us what we're doing wrong and walk away, but he tells us, hey, this is something that's going on, but no matter what, I love you, and I commit to you, and you are invited to the grand feast. I commit to a relationship with you forever, and that is the Jesus that we have. That is the living God that loves us and has power over everything else. Jesus is not willing to stand by, but he will fight for us, and that is worthy of worship. So will you join us today? It can be easy to sing these words when we've just heard a message reminding us when we are gathered together on a Sunday. I want to pray for you because together we're going back into God's world on his mission, and we're not always around each other. We're facing a barrage of interruptions and distractions and difficulties of all kinds. 
And it can be hard for us to remember in some of those moments to look to the Lamb. For some of us, it can be a simple, honestly, just a practical recommendation. Download some more of the right music onto your phone. And in those moments where you realize, I'm, I'm struggling, there's a, an attack against my thinking right now, I invite you, find songs like these. Look to the Lamb. Songs that summon the attention of your spirit and remind you where to look in those moments. I'm going to call our prayer ministry team to come forward right now. Some of you, as you were listening to the message shared today, you realized, I feel like I'm right in the middle of Pergamum. There is temptation, there is trial, there is difficulty, and my mind struggles and suffers in the midst of it. And there is a special grace from God available to you by His Spirit to help you in the midst of that. Jesus is with you. And as you receive prayer from others, as you offer your prayers, there is strength added to you. There is victory added to your circumstance. So today, as we close in prayer, if you know that you need that kind of help, I'd invite you to come forward and receive prayer from one of our friends. They're here to help and to serve you in your circumstance and situation. It may not be that. It may be something completely different that's on your mind right now. A care, a concern, a family member, a loved one, a strained relationship something in your life that you've battled where you feel disqualified now. You just need somebody to pray with you. We would love to pray with you. Would you join me today in put, putting your hand over your heart? We're going to just pray all together in this moment. Father, we're going into your world on your mission. And we declare again our dependence upon you. We need you. We need one another. We can't do this on our own. But the same kind of love and hope, the help, the mercy, the grace, the healing, the meaning in life that we've found in you is the kind of, it's the very thing everyone in the Comox Valley is in desperate need of. And it's our heart's desire to see that message and that reality overflow into their lives, in our neighborhoods, our workplaces, at school this fall. Fill us with your spirit again in a fresh way. Empower us and send us with one another. We pray this in the good name, the strongest name, which is yours alone. In Jesus' name we pray this. And everyone said... Amen. Go in God's blessing. Go with one another. Enjoy a little bit of a cooler day and enjoy one another as you head into this week today.